0: Hello, my friends. Mandy here with a quick invitation for you to join the Patreon for our show. We've recently switched up some of the benefits, including a new monthly workbook to go along with all the incredible content you're getting on the show. It's a quote yourself through grief kind of a vibe. And for only $10 a month, it is a wholly worthy and affordable way to invest in your own healing process without the commitment of a full coaching relationship. Learn more at patreon.com slash Mandy And of course the link is in the show notes. Thank you as always for being here. Now let's get into the good stuff. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 99, titled Crying is So Good for You with Benjamin Perry. Benjamin Perry is the author of Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. As you can imagine, the title immediately caught my attention and I had to get him on the show. His work explores humanity's rich legacy of weeping and asks the question, why did some of us ever stop crying? Because after realizing that he hadn't cried in 10 years or so, Benjamin set out to reset his own experience of life through crying on a daily basis. And the result is a beautiful new relational paradigm for him to explore with himself and the people around him. So if you are in a place where crying activates anxiety, fear, shame, or any other heavy feeling or emotion, today's conversation will hopefully create a safer space for you to explore your own motives and hopes through tears. And if you didn't know already, it's always okay to cry here. Hey everybody welcome back it's mandy here on restorative grief my guest today is the author of cry baby why our tears matter and if you're new around here you may not know that i'm a little bit obsessed with the concept of crying but if you're not new you understand exactly why ben is here today so ben thank you for making time to be on the show
1: thanks so much for having me to be here
0: absolutely so i think it's i think it's literally the very first episode of the podcast is about tears and about the value of them. Originally, the podcast artwork even included raindrops and water as metaphor, of course, but also is a very practical and real invitation into the value of our tears. And so why don't you start us off with why you would write a book about that and a little bit more about who you are?
1: Yeah. So the book starts with a period in my life where I didn't cry for about a decade um, from the time I was maybe 12 or so years old up until uh, you know I was 22 in seminary, I didn't cry once. And I think looking back on that decade and the way that I was feeling lost and the way that I was grappling with internalized homophobia and issues of gender and all these forces that were making me feel uncomfortable in my own body that were making me distance myself from my emotional life, the kinds of bullying and harm that I experienced that led me to divorce myself from my emotions are now, because it's another decade after I learned how to cry again, cast in stark relief. Like I look at the person who I am now and I contrast it with this person I had become through years of punishing emotional isolation. And I recognize so palpably the value of tears. And so I, I wrote the book actually at the beginning of the pandemic um, because I was living next to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital and I was watching them park morgue trucks in the street outside my house and hearing sirens all night, all day, every day. And there was this painful juxtaposition between the sort of back-to-normalcy drum that was constantly beating in the media and in government, and the overwhelming amount of death and grief and pain that was surrounding me. And it made me think about this time in my life where I was experiencing a lot of suffering, and I, the only way that I could deal with that was to suppress it. And it was making me think that culturally we were doing the same. And so I wrote an article talking about my own experience learning to cry again as a microcosm for what I felt we needed to do culturally that we all collectively needed to learn how to cry again. Mm-hmm. And uh editor read the the piece and reached out and said, would you be interested in writing a whole book about crying? And I hadn't thought about it at that point, but the more I thought about crying, the more I realized how much it mapped onto all these things I'm so passionate about that I wanted to talk about already things like sexuality and gender and race issues of power and who was afforded the ability to enjoy a full emotional life. And so the more I thought about tears, the more I realized that there was just this beautiful refraction of all these bits of being human that I desperately wanted to write about.
0: I think that that's such a powerful image too. Um, One of the things we focus on here is that holistic self, heart, mind, body, and spirit. And when you talked about repression and distance from the emotional self, I just resonate so deeply because everyone I know is in the process of just distancing themselves from Mm -hmm. that overwhelm and from that onslaught of maybe not even knowing what they're feeling or what they're experiencing emotionally. And you're a hundred percent right. It is that inclusionary perspective that allows us to recognize the validity and the value and the beauty of our emotional selves. So how, as you're approached by this publisher and thinking like, okay, well, I would have to actually get really serious about my own. Like it's one thing to have the idea and say, this would be a great article. Bloop, bloop, (laughs) 2000 words later, nailed it versus a 40,000, 50, 60,000 word book that actually means you have to do your own work? What started to come up for you when you realized the breadth of what you said yes to?
1: Well, one of the things that I really wanted to do was make sure that the book carried more experiences of crying than I have in my own body. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a responsibility, particularly when you're writing a book versus an article. Obviously, you know, any article you should hopefully try to be balanced and include perspectives other than your own, but particularly when you're talking about a book and you're doing whole chapters and you're really digging into to topics in a meatier way. I think that there's a you know intellectual and moral responsibility yeah. to try to make sure that you're you know representing the world as accurately as you can. And I also was just really, it was this incredible opportunity to get to talk to all these different people about crying. So what began as sort of a, oh, it's really important for this book to include these other perspectives quickly became this incredible gift to spend a year talking with all kinds of incredible people from famous theologians to TikTok stars, to actors, to parents, to teachers, all sorts of wonderful people who were gracious enough with their time that they you know, would would talk to me about tears. And it was this incredible gift to hear all of these different experiences that really brought out Both some of the commonalities that I saw sort of across that sort of universal human impetus to weep and the particularities of how people, how crying intersects with people's gender and race and all these other social forces that uh, affect when and if we feel comfortable crying. And to your sort of earlier point about so many people being in this place where they're trying to distance themselves from that overwhelming affect. That was one of the, the real universals that I heard come through, mm-hmm. was that almost everybody I spoke to talked about experiences that made them feel like crying was something either that they shouldn't do mm-hmm. ever, or they shouldn't do in particular cultural contexts. but everybody had received messages about crying to, to inhibit tears. But what was really interesting is that the messages were all totally different. Mm. And so I would talk to, you know, men and hear stories about the ways that, you know, crying was depicted as not masculine or a violation of patriarchal norms, uh, you know, a sign of weakness. I would talk to women and hear people talk about, you know, how crying would confirm people's, uh, prejudices about, you know, women's inability to lead in the workplace or be taken seriously in professional context. I would talk to, you know, Black folks who shared with me the ways that, you know, crying sometimes in white, predominantly white spaces, they felt would, uh, again, confirm the prejudices and biases that people maybe already had about, you know, Black people being unable to control their emotions. I would talk to, you know, the children of, uh, you know, first generation immigrants who talked about you know, dis- their parents discouraging their tears as an act of love because the world had never been soft and gentle for them. And so here they were trying to prepare their children for a world that they did not assume would be gentle. Um, and so it was really fascinating and heartbreaking to hear all of these different stories about why people had been alienated from this very universal tendency to weep. And I think that, you know, in an inverse way bespeaks tears power as well. Like there is a reason why all of these social forces respond to try to constrain weeping and it's because weeping is powerful.
0: Yeah. And I love that you said that because one of my favorite things about tears when I first started learning is of course, all of the health benefits, all of the Mm -hmm. reasons why tears are so valuable. And I think you even start your book with the anecdote about how emotional tears are slower because they have a higher protein content. So they go down Mm -hmm. your face. When I first learned that my mind was like, of course it is. That's how we think of our babies. When our babies are crying, we are immediately moved into action. And if I don't see the tears, I may not know. It might be like, I've cried silently before. Right. So that alone to me, all of those benefits are so powerful, but that one in particular speaks to that a mm, False bootstrap theory in the U S right. In our Western culture that says like, you don't have to cry. You can just pull yourself back up. I have learned that when someone says, Hey, don't cry. It's not a comment on me and my emotional state. It's a comment on their inability to provide space or to comfort or to show up for me in a way that is something they would perceive as meaningful or helpful. It's their own discomfort centering their needs over my very obvious distress And it's, it's interesting working with grievers to be able to say like, Hey, what if you framed it that way? What if your dad wasn't emotionally unavailable to you only, but he was emotionally unavailable to everyone, which people be like, well, yeah, duh. And I'm like, no, no, walk that out. That was never about you. And this like relief, right? So then there's a different type of tear that relief and release that they say like, oh, my dad, like my baggage with him. Wasn't Mm -hmm. about me. It's this. It's astounding when you start digging in. So like, what is your, I mean, obviously that was the first in your book, but like, what are some of the other benefits of crying that you have explored more and really felt, oh, this one, people need to know this one.
1: Yeah. I think one of the things that really came across to me in the crying research is all of the benefit, the social benefits of crying that yes, there are benefits to the individual when we cry. But that actually crying is also this incredible power that links us to our neighbor. That when they look cross-culturally, they've done studies where they've you know interviewed people, like thousands of people in dozens of countries and six continents around the globe. They found that in every single one, on average, when people see someone crying, they were more likely to offer help. And more likely to pick up that that person was in need of assistance. That's not a cultural thing. It's a it's a human thing. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think is is really important to remember. Because I think a lot of us walk around with this suspicion that if we cry around other people, they're going to be mean to us. Or they're going to judge us. Or think less of us. And actually, I think the opposite is true and i think the research supports that that when we cry around other people it actually invites a tenderness
0: mm-hmm.
1: obviously not all the time and not with everybody and that's you know part of the <laughs> complication the complexity of being human yeah. but on average most of the time if we are vulnerable around other people it actually opens an opportunity to forge a new kind of connection with them and the more that I have personally cried openly, I have found that to be true. That yes, sometimes it's not greeted in a way that I think would be optimal. But by and large, most of the time, it invites somebody else into that tender space beside you. Maybe they start crying. Maybe they just simply are there with you in a different kind of way than they would have been otherwise. Mm. But I have found that anecdotally to be pretty true in my own life. And I think it's important for people to know that the research bears that out, that yes, actually most people are disposed to treat other people more kindly when they see them crying, that they're more likely to offer help, that it changes the relationship. Because I think once we start to change our own perception of that, it really changes the way that we move through the world. And it can create different kinds of relationships that transcend the sort of cursory interactions that we're taught to have with people, particularly people we don't know very well.
0: Yeah, it sounds like research shows that people are inherently good, and want to do well by Which others. Of course,
1: of course they are. Like that's right? why we we cry. evolutionarily, is is as a invitation to collective response. And there's a little part of my book where I talk about you know humans not being tremendously physically remarkable animals like we don't run very fast yeah. we're not you know we don't have fangs and claws we don't have exoskeletons we're soft and fleshy our young are very very ineffectual for years yeah. <laughs> not able to take care of themselves even a little bit um but what we are amazing and remarkable at is the ability to create like mutually beneficial relationships outside of our immediate family. Like generally speaking in nature, there's always a, you know, uh, a biological incentive to make sure that the people who share your genes live. But oftentimes it doesn't actually extend that far beyond those immediate uh, people who carry your genetic information and what both the history of humanity in terms of our cultural evolution, but also those pieces of our biological evolution suggest is that that is what made humans remarkable. It's what allowed us to thrive, is that ability to enter into non-zero relationships with people who we are not genetically invested in. Hmm. And crying is this, this beautiful, embodied signifier of that deeper biological truth.
0: I'm thinking a lot about our response as humans being unremarkable and probably feeling kind of bad about it. And like (laughs) evolutionarily, I'm just thinking about like, oh, these cavemen are like tired of being chased by saber-toothed tigers and like super sick of their young, not contributing to the family. And really they're just like evolved minds over time, generations and generations like thinking, okay, well, um, we, all we have to offer is each other. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: At what point did we decide That core unit was too disappointing. We weren't good enough in what we had to offer. I must become more invulnerable internally so that I can, I don't know, feel like I'm contributing. I'm I'm, so much of the messaging that I've worked through in my own therapeutic life that I have clients working through that I'm sure you and everyone you know, right? Has worked through at some point this, Mm -hmm. what am I here for? What am I contributing? Framed against that idea of- (laughs) we're just kind of soft and fleshy and really don't have a whole lot to offer. But the reality is we are the one species with the evolved brain. The one that has that higher emotional sense of self and that sense of autonomy and that sense of collective um, decision-making as opposed to, you know, well, the bird knows to fly, the bird knows to come back home. They have innate DNA instructions of what they're expected to do. And we have autonomy. We can decide what we want to do. And I I don't know. It's interesting to see so many people starting to kind of swing the other way and say, well, I don't choose to be hard and dry and emotionless and stoic. I choose to soften and surrender to what might actually be really important for me.
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's partly why suppressing tears really does shut out a core part of what it means to be human. Yeah because tears are not just about sadness, they're not just about grief. Sometimes we cry when we're joyous. Sometimes we cry when when we've longed for something and it finally arrives. There's so many reasons why we cry that to truly suppress tears, what we're doing is muting our emotional response across the board. If When you learn to not cry, you are learning to feel less deeply. And that's applies to all aspects of your life and i think there are a lot of people who are walking around with a sense that they have a numbness that has been inculcated in them and i don't want to blame anyone for for feeling numb there's so many reasons beyond any of our responsibilities uh you know for why so many of us feel that way and i'm speaking as somebody who was very numb for a very long time yeah but that choice to stay there is something that we can choose. I think we, we can recognize the ways that the world has blunted our full experience of humanity and consciously resist that.
0: I mean, I think a lot too about like numbness usually points to someone feeling really powerless. Yeah. And angry and those are scary experiences to to feel like you have no ability to influence your life to recognize that things happen randomly like loss does not discriminate pain and trauma those things happen to most of us and although we have the access to build resiliency and get support and you know accept practice acceptance and all of those positive experiences when there's loss or when there's emotional
1: need. And and numbness is also protective. You know, there's, there's a way that, you know, that that it serves us in various periods of our lives. Um, but I think we all need to evaluate and ask, is this thing that once served us still serving me?
0: Right. Yeah. That's something that we talk about a lot is rather than sticking with binaries of good and bad, we, eliminate those completely and look at, well, is this helpful or is it harmful? And if it is harmful, can we reduce the harm? How can we say, okay, numbness served us for a while, but now we want growth. What are some avenues for growth that invite us very gently out of that numb self-protective loss of our state and into an opportunity where we can practice connection and play and fun and assert control in little ways. That doesn't mean yes, that we can influence our income levels and our family situations and everything we do, how do we stay present even when it's complicated? So I'm curious with that in mind, like what are some of the ways that you found as you're practicing crying every day (laughs) to um, really invite that transformative experience and not just be able to check a box like, cool, watched a sad YouTube video and cried for 10 minutes today. Next, like how did you integrate what you were experiencing
1: Well, that was the the interesting thing about this process that I went through in my early twenties. So, for folks who haven't read the book, I described that uh, there was a class early on in my seminary experience where this professor invited us to think about the last time that we had cried, and in this little small group, I was listening to all these folks go around and share these experiences of crying and grief, and as the you know, conversation was going around in the circle. I realized I I didn't have anything. I couldn't remember a time I had cried since I was a little kid. Mm. Um, and so I decided to embark on this spiritual experiment where I would make myself cry every day. And what in the beginning it very was much was make myself cry because I was so lost from my own tears that there was no way that I was simply going to just cry naturally. If I was going to cry, it was going to be because I had watched some YouTube videos where I had forced myself into, uh, you know, wrestling with emotional trauma or the, the parts of me that were still in pain. Like it was that deliberate act that would bring me to a place where I could cry. But what was really interesting is over the course of those months that shifted. And all of a sudden by month, Three or four, most of the days I didn't have to go back and make myself cry because I had already cried sometime. There was, you know, a moment of beauty in a worship service or something that a friend told me that was poignant, where I would read something, something awful that happened on the news, and I would just start crying because I had just brought all of my emotions nearer to that surface. And I think. For me, that's one of the lessons I've had is that once you bring yourself to that place where you're just crying more regularly because you have brought that emotional threshold just that much higher, you've made that baseline emotionality just that much more responsive, there is a real temptation to retreat because it's not always convenient to feel so deeply. And I've been really trying to be deliberate and intentional When I hit that moment where I want to shut down, to not, to do something different, to really let myself cry, even if it's not a particularly convenient moment. And that doesn't mean necessarily making myself the center of attention and histrionically wailing in a time (laughs) where that wouldn't be appropriate. But I will let tears Quietly fall down my cheeks, even if it's a place where I'm like, oh, I'm in a professional meeting, or oh, I'm, you know, I'm representing myself at a, a panel where I'm talking about my book, or you know, somewhere where I feel like, oh, I should be being professional. I've been trying to retrain myself into thinking about what it means to be professional, what it means to be mm-hmm. to show up in a place and sh- to show up well, and to include a full range of human emotion in that self-understanding of how I move through the world.
0: Yeah. I love that because I've recently been trying to do something similar in that if tears get out, either I'm self-deprecating and said, oops, I'm leaking, you know, the okay. silly little like, ah, let's just laugh about it. Um, but really I'll say something along the lines of like, guess I needed some endorphins. I guess mm-hmm. my blood pressure was a little high and it just whoop needed a release calling those scientific and, and practical experiences. Our body goes through just to well, one because I'm a grief educator and like that's my thing, right? Let me bring this. Yeah. Let me make this. If we're making it awkward by my crying, let me just at least give you some context. It's gonna be help a you teaching walk moment, now. <laughs> It's a teachable moment. Um, but also, I think about this a lot because I have a daughter who's nine, and she is so beautifully emotional. But there are settings where she will tell me, "Mom, I almost burst into tears," and I was like, "Yeah, what held you back?" Well, they would have made fun of me. I'm like, "Who?" The one person that was mean or the 20 people telling them to stop being mean. Think about the advocates you would have had in that moment, babe. Would you have been embarrassed? Sure. That's a natural response to a culture that says you shouldn't do these things. But if everyone who loves you is saying, do it, burst into tears, girl, you will take the power of that moment right away from the bully. And you will recognize in that moment how many advocates and allies you have. Those are the powerful things we forget about the way we can use tears, even socially, but even to your point, professionally, like I, as a soccer coach get hurt and I will cry as a coach Mm -hmm. because uh, first of all, I have a little rough and tumble and I get hurt just like the girls do, but there's no reason not to, for me, there's no reason to say like, Oh, don't worry. Once you're my age, you won't cry when you get hurt. Oh, the hell you won't you might cry harder. Right? Mm-hmm. So we've got this idea, even in a professional setting too, that it eliminates our effectiveness, our influence. I don't, I, I think that if it does affect our influence, that was the wrong arena. Maybe we didn't have any real influence there. Maybe we had a sense of here's a version of me that you like, and I can do this performance for so long. And then eventually I will cry hysterically because you raise your eyebrow while I'm talking. Or whatever it is it really harkens back to that sense of grounded self that says i'm willing to show up for myself as authentically as i can but that means knowing what authentic self of you like what that actually means for you in a different way
1: well and i think you know to your your advice about to your daughter you know thinking about of the 20 people who would respond favorably and not, you know, focusing on the one person who is going to make fun of this natural response. There are times when tears are the appropriate response to a situation. Yeah. And actually, if we cry and people denigrate our tears, what that very clearly reveals to everybody is their own inhumanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk in one of the chapters of my book about President Obama crying after Newtown, and I include in that section a lot of the responses from sort of the right wing, ecosphere, making fun of him, like mocking him. You know, posting the meme of James Vanderbeek. You know, yeah, sobbing <laughs> on Dawson's Creek is like, oh, look at this, this you know, president he can't even hold it together. But, but but the context for this was children dying, right? And when you are crying because children have been killed, and a bunch of other people are making fun of you. It is very clear for everybody who is watching who holds the moral integrity and who holds the moral authority in that moment.
0: Right. Which is a difficult concept to elevate as just as important as influence and power and authority socially. Mm -hmm. Like, I think a lot about that context with social media because it's so easy to be pedantic and dismissive and rude. And I kind of, I have such a love-hate relationship with social media because of that, because there is never going to be a day that my work impacts the people who are busy trolling one another online. There will never be a day, at least that I'll live to see. It may be that someday in the future, my book shows up on somebody's doorstep and they're like, oh my God, this made so much sense. I wish I'd been there 30 years ago and not lived my life in such rage.
1: Well, and what I'm hopeful of is that sometimes... The things we say may plant a seed, even if we're not there to watch it grow. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's me deluding myself. No, so it's it optimism. Another, I'm with you. It. But I really, I really do believe that. I believe that there are moments when we say the, the kind and soft thing in a context where somebody else is being angry and that maybe I don't get to the personal gratification, the personal satisfaction of watching that person's mind change, but maybe three years from now, five years from now, sometime, that invocation of a different kind of way to live may start to make its way to the fore in their own their own minds because they're getting tired of, of living in that anger.
0: I'm glad you said anger because I wanted to talk about the difference and um, kind of the social fallout of, I'll call them angry tears, but really they are a little more performative tears when we get so angry but we're not sure where to go with it because we've never been taught a healthy way to approach our anger Mm -hmm. and it comes off as performative whether or not it actually is is not up to me right how do we socially approach someone who we're in conflict with whether it's in person or online and Mm -hmm. then one party starts crying and that part of us that says this is this is emotion. This is sensitivity, vulnerability. I need to soften my approach here, but we've also been very well harmed and are nervous to let that person in. How would you, how would you invite that resolution?
1: So I, I call that aggressive vulnerability in my book. Um, <laughs> I'm sure those, you know, choose your, choose your word, That that's what I, I've chosen to I, think I love about it. it as. Um, and i think one of the common responses to that kind of aggressive vulnerability that i don't think is particularly helpful is people saying those tears aren't real they're not they're not real it's a you know they're either crocodile tears they're make. they're forcing themselves to cry whatever maybe it's true maybe it's not i don't know i'm not i'm not in their head i think for the most part though when people are in that aggressively vulnerable place that they are actually crying real tears. It's just those tears are grounded in something that we find uh, unsavory or immoral or unjust. And so that's what we're responding to. But I think that by dismissing the emotionality of the person by saying that's not a real emotional experience, all you do is more deeply entrench that emotional response because for that person, it is a real emotional experience and they hear you as being dismissive of something that they are genuinely feeling. And none of us like when we are told that this real emotion we're having is not real. That's not to say that we need to affirm or validate that emotion, but I don't think that saying, oh, that's fake, is the right way to go about it. I think a better response is to be curious and to Ask somebody why are you feeling this way, and to f- and to frame it intentionally as a feeling and an emotion, because I think one of the ways that aggressive vulnerability often operates is by pretending that it's not a feeling, by pretending that like anger is not an emotional response when it absolutely is. Right. And so I think that if we are curious and empathetic, that actually will go further in terms of trying to you know uh, unwind some of what's covering this up. And this I'm really offering this more in the Case of like somebody in your own personal life, somebody who you have a relationship with. Yeah, I don't think that you know over like a tweet or something that this is really a particularly effective strategy. I don't think you're going to get get very far. There's a project that I invoke in the the book that I really love, um, which is Dylan Marin, uh has this podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Um, and, you know he had been going pretty viral for a long time and had, had gotten his uh, fair share of of Hate mail and death threats and all sorts of other loveliness that so many of us who uh work on, on the internet are uh privy to. And he decided to embark on this uh project where he invited not the people who were sending him death threats, but people who said, you know, pretty bigoted or uh unpleasant, hateful things his way. And he would invite them to an hour-long conversation. And they would come on the podcast with him and they would talk. And he would ask, why did you write this? One of the things he's really clear about is the kind of privilege that this empathy is, that this should not be a universal expectation. This is something that you can choose to take on when and if it's comfortable for you, when and if you're able. But if you're able to enter into that empathic space with somebody who uh, is acting in an like an aggressively vulnerable <laughs> Uh, way towards you that actually you might find that by digging underneath that, you can really get to the bottom of what they're feeling. And it's not actually about you. It's probably more about what they've been going through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, I I can't wait to listen to that podcast because that's exactly what I was trying to get through the other day was this understanding that, listen, it's one thing to say a bully's comments or someone mean saying something to you says more about them. It's another to say, hey, they're really scared that you're going to cause them harm. And so they are threatening you to prevent their own harm. They're not actually interested in harming you. It's the only way they've been shown to survive a world that wants them to soften. Hmm.
1: Well, and to, you you know, your comment at the beginning of our conversation about, you know, that's not actually about you know, you and your relationship with your father, mm-hmm. like he, that your father is also not able to offer that kind of tenderness to himself either.
0: Right. Yeah. And that
1: sort of memory that somebody who is unable to engage with you in, in the kinds of basic empathy and kindness and respect is probably unable to, in, to relate to themselves with those kinds of basic principles either. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I'm thinking about, obviously you wrote a whole book, but in your own process, were you journaling and writing little notes through your experiences or were you just like, okay, I know I cried every day this week because I didn't leave a box unchecked.
1: I really wanted to uh, include, while I was writing the book, I made this whole list of all of the reasons I had cried. Um, and my editor eventually was like, eh, I don't know, it's it's a good way to leave. But I kind of wanted to lead off with... Um, this uh, list, like this litany of all the things that I had, <laughs> had provoked my tears. And I liked it because it, it it runs the gamut of everything from like watching school officials defy Governor DeSantis, DeSantis to protect kids in their care. yeah. Afghanistan's collapse to, you know, bell hooks dying, Joan Didion dying, Meatloaf dying. Oh, that or... one killed me.
0: Just to be clear, I met Meatloaf when I was a teenager. Here's a dumb anecdote. And I was so enamored by how kind he was when he died, I literally wept for an hour.
1: <laughs> I, I, I like drove around listening. But then, you know, there's also things on here like Willow and Oz breaking up on Buffy. Uh, Rewatching admiring, Buffy.
0: That's one.
1: <laughs> admiring a sunrise <laughs> or In uh, Conto. It's just <laughs> written in all caps. That's um, fair. Like, And and so I just liked the the balance, or like reading about the extinction of the ivory billed woodpecker, like there's everything from these like very real and pressing real world things to little things that just for whatever reason caught me in that moment, where they just started make started to make me cry. Um, So I was like writing down and sort of journaling and just being attentive to that because I I do think that you know being attentive to our emotional lives and treating them as real sources of information, is one of the ways that we can help reprioritize them for ourselves and like we've been told by so many people to be suspicious of our emotions that you know uh objectivity is where the, the true source of reason comes from and that's how you know speaking of the spiritual context that's how you develop a relationship with god that systematic mm-hmm. theology is the only way to truly know what god is about that our emotions are not valid sources for theological inspiration right. um, and i think in order to unwind all of that We need to start thinking about our emotions as real sources of truth, as sources of theological insight, as reminders of some of the best parts of ourselves in the way that we relate to the world. And I think being attentive and journaling or writing down or being observant of how we are emotionally responding to things is a really crucial part of affirming that importance.
0: I think you need to release the list in like small pieces because I'm thinking about how it completely underscores the value of not comparing our losses or our pain to another person. I cannot tell you how well I probably could. I could probably say that every single one of my clients at some point had said, it's not that bad though, right? Like I should be over minimizing their experience, minimizing their emotional self, minimizing their understanding of what is worth grieving it's such a human propensity because we we want to serve and like even talking about that spiritual context we think that we have to be stoic or calm or controlled so to speak in order to be of service or of benefit to the people around us the reality is that deep understanding that like my experience is entirely unique and really crucial for the development of who I am as a human and who I am in community and who I am inside that list. It's exactly that. It's a pure confirmation that like, Hey, you're going to respond to things. You could all lose the same person and you will all respond incredibly differently. But does that invalidate any of your responses? No, of course not. So why would we do it if if I'm crying into Encanto and you're laughing at me? And like, no, no, Moana was more emotional. Why are you crying at this? I
1: think a lot of us internalize a message that whatever we have gone through is not real enough to be worthy yeah. of deep emotional response. And that's true for people who have endured horrific things. And it's true for people who haven't. But none of us should feel like we don't have the right to fully inhabit our bodies yeah. because somebody out there has experienced something worse.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if you could leave people listening with one, not an anecdote, not a piece of advice, but like an invitation into, hey, have you also not cried for over a decade? Here's a place to start. What would you say to that person who's like, that sounds great. I I am willing to try. Where do I begin?
1: That relates to a a question I've I've gotten a lot as I've been doing, you know, press and things for the book, which is people will ask, Do you want people to cry more? (laughs) And I say, sure. Um, (laughs) but that's not really I don't I think it's the wrong question. Yeah, it is and I think you know. Trying to get yourself to cry, even though that was sort of where my own personal journey started with all of this, mm-hmm. I think I kind of went around it backwards. Mm-hmm. I think what is what we're really if you want if you feel like you haven't cried for a long time or you don't you cry very infrequently or crying is hard or you feel like you have all this stuff pent up inside of you and crying would be really helpful, and you want to cry more, trying to get yourself to cry, I think, is the wrong way to go about it. I think what's really important, is trying to get yourself to feel, Mm -hmm. to really explore the texture of your emotions, to be able to name them, to be able to name the way that they feel in your body, where you feel them in your body, give them a texture, a shape, try to really focus on what it feels like to feel that thing fully and to not run away from it, to not dismiss it or come up with reasons why that feeling shouldn't really be that feeling. And I think the more that you're able to sit with that place, the more you will find tears just naturally come. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's like the other sort of invitation that I have been making to, to folks with this book is an invitation to curiosity. I think so many of us grew up with all of this shame around crying. Many of us Feel shame when we we're kids and we cry and we're told not to cry. And then we have this shameful relationship with crying that we develop as, as children. And then when we get older and we find that, oh, we're not as emotionally available to partners or friends, or, you know, that we all of a sudden we have this new shame that, oh, I'm not, I'm not emotionally available enough. And so now I'm, you know, stuck between the shame that I experienced as a child and the shame that I'm experiencing as an adult. And all of that is not your shame that is something that has been placed on you. And it's not actually conducive or helpful to developing a full emotional life. And so I hope that you can be curious for yourself about where that shame comes from, about why you feel that way. Uh, If you're looking for a little companion, you can (laughs) go out and buy Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. And I go through some different, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, common threads that I heard through my interviews about um, some of the social forces that shape or constrain our weeping. But regardless of if you buy my little book or not, I really hope that you sit and think about your emotional life as a source of good waiting for you. Something that can help shape you into a more complete and full person. And to be curious about how you've reached this point and be curious about where it might lead you.
0: Mm. Ben, that's beautiful. And thank you so much for opening yourself up and just unpacking a lot of what this has meant for you. And if anybody can't afford his book right now, I have another um resource, of course, that I'll put in the show notes that I use in coaching that helps bring in, it's actually called focusing that brings that felt sense of awareness to the soma, to the body, so that we can get in and really understand that these feelings are inherent. They're so good and they're so important and so. That'll be in the Also, please
1: just tell your local yeah. library to get my book. Like, yes, you... I am not like a like if you don't buy my book, you're not supporting me. Like, I love my library. I love it so deeply. Same. Like yeah. huge fan of the public library. Just tell them, hey, there's this cool new book on crying. Awesome. I would love to read it. I guarantee you they will get it for you. And then you Thank can you. read it for free.
0: They will. You know, it's funny that you say that because that's the first thing I do. Anytime I'm like, I'm gonna buy a book. Oh, my library needs this too. Okay. And I did the same. I our library has your book now. It's so good. Okay. Ben? Where can they find you?
1: You can find me on Instagram or uh, Twitter, I guess now threads. Right, uh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Because Faithful... we're all
0: on threads now. All the cool kids. Uh, good,
1: good, good. Another place <laughs> for
0: me to update.
1: Um, um, but you can find me at faithfullybp, BP. Um, or you can, uh, if you are a church going person, I'm a minister at Middle Church in New York City. And we are put all of our resources and worship and stuff online. So wherever you are, you can always find some music to to buoy your spirits and some words that will hopefully add some wisdom into your life.
0: I love it. Thank you so much for making time. Of course. Thank you for listening to episode 99 of Restorative Grief. I hope you found Ben's story of exploring the emotional self as an invitation to go deeper. As he said, it doesn't need to be something forced or formulaic but an internal softening toward yourself and that part of you that is innately human. There's no need to shut down or suppress the incredible design of who you are. In fact, there are so many good reasons to embrace that design and find yourself coming back to life. You can snag your copy of Cry Baby, Why Your Tears Matter at your local retailer or bookstore.org, as well as learn more about the focusing technique I mentioned through links in the show notes. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to thank you for joining our little community of grief, literate, vulnerable humans, and hope you'll decide to subscribe or even become a patron for some bonus content. Check out the show notes where you can connect with either of us on social media or on our websites, because we would love to hear from you. And one last thing, as always, please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.